Welcome to the Be Good Podcast, where we explore the application of behavioral economics for good in order to nudge better business and better lives. Hi, and welcome to this episode of Be Good, brought to you by BVA Nudge Consulting, a global consultancy specializing in the application of behavioral science for successful behavior change. Every month, we get to speak with a leader in the field of behavioral science in order to get to know more about them, their work, and its application to emerging issues. My name is Eric Singler, founder and CEO of BVNH Consulting, and with me is my colleague, Ted Utoft. Hi, Ted. Hi, Eric. I'm excited to be joining you for this episode. It's been a while. I'm delighted to be introducing our guest, John A. List. Now, John and I promise to put our Midwestern American rivalry between Minnesota and Wisconsin behind us for this chat. John is the Kenneth C. Griffin Distinguished Service Professor in Economics at the University of Chicago, a Distinguished Professor of Economics at the Australian National University, as well as formerly serving as the Chief Economist at both Lyft and Uber. Next, he'll be the Chief Economist at American retailer Walmart. John has served on the Council of Economic Advisors and is the recipient of numerous awards and honors, including the Galbraith Award. John has authored hundreds of peer-reviewed journal articles and several books, including with Uri Nisi, the bestseller, The Y-Axis, and the recently released The Voltage Effect, How to Make Good Ideas Great and Great Ideas Scale. John, welcome to our Be Good podcast. Hey guys, as a big fan of the show, thank you so much for having me. Okay, thanks a lot, uh, John. Thank you so much for joining uh, us uh, today for this uh, new episode. Uh, I have read that my friend and one of my mentors, Kassenstein, who uh, has joined us twice on the podcast, has written about you. List has done more than anyone else to advance the methods and practice all field experiments. So we are more than excited to have this conversation uh, with you uh, and to share uh, some of your insight, asking questions regarding this wonderful new uh, book, The Voltage Effect. So, John, I think you have received your PhD quite a long time ago from the University of Wyoming in 1996. Uh, can you tell us about how you came to be interested in behavioral science and field experiments? Yeah, so Eric, I thought that you liked me, but with that intro, I mean, we started at a really good place with Cass's wonderful words about my contributions, and then all of a sudden you tell me how old I am, you remind me about father time. So, so that, that story actually goes all the way back to the late 80s, talk about being old. So as an undergraduate student at the University of Wisconsin at Stevens Point, I was both a golfer, so I was on a partial golf scholarship, and that was a dream at the time. And whenever we didn't golf in the weekends, I would go to what's called a baseball card show. And what a baseball card show essentially is, is a large convention center where people go in and they buy, sell, and trade baseball cards. So I was actually fascinated by what I was learning in the classroom is I would learn about economic theory or game theory, I would bring that 
to those baseball card conventions and I would test those theories. And in a way, I was becoming a scientist before my very eyes. And I began to see that in many cases, the beautiful theories I was learning in the classroom, they're simple, elegant, and beautiful. They wouldn't always capture what I was learning in the market. So I began to shorthand in my brain amendments to that theory. And in a way, I was doing behavioral economics. I was thinking about why isn't this person acting a certain way when they're bargaining or bidding in auctions? And then I became a dealer in the late 80s. So I was actually selling and trading baseball cards to make money. And I would begin to run small scale experiments. I would explore if I bargain one way, if I talk to the woman rather than the man in the, in the family, if I would talk to the child, I would explore different levels of prices. And I began to run small scale field experiments. And I became a person who would essentially begin to think about the world as his lab. And the roots here, 1988 to 1992, essentially set in motion what became my career, which is, of course, to expand beyond baseball card shows. I, I, I never thought that baseball card shows in and of themselves were important, but I knew enough about the market and I could fund my own research that I figured it was a really important glimpse into testing economic theory. So that that's really how I got started. Okay, uh, thanks uh, a lot. Uh, it's really uh, very interesting. It reminds me uh, the list of anomalies uh, of Richard Taylor, meaning uh, checking uh, different uh, behaviors from human people uh, and not icons, as uh, he's used to uh, to call them. So could you share with us any mentors that had a particularly strong influence uh, on you or uh, um, experiments which were uh, very influential to you? Yeah. So, so that's a bit like choosing my favorite child. And you both probably know I have eight kids, so it's hard to choose my favorite child. So I think if you, if you view just overall mentors, of course, my parents in a way set up my life just through observation of their work ethic. My, my dad's a truck driver, my mom, the secretary. And while they may not have been entirely keen on me going to college, they, they always supported hard work and, and showed the, the import of hard work. Now, once I got to Stephen's point, there was a fellow named Dennis Palmini that appreciated my talents as an economist and he opened up that door. I had no idea as a, as a, as a kid from a small bucolic town, you, you don't have an idea about what's out there. And I didn't. And, and uh, Dennis Palmini really helped me realize that and, and guide me. Once I got to Wyoming, I, at that point, I was telling everyone that field experiments are the way to go. And, People didn't buy it, frankly. 
Um, but the only person at the University of Wyoming who did was Jason Shogren. And, and Jay served a very important role as a mentor in just telling a young academic that his ideas were not rubbish. And, and that was important. Also at the time, a guy named Chuck Mason, he and I wrote a lot of theoretical papers together. A big part of my dissertation was um, differential game theory. So I, I did a fair amount of theory alongside the field experiments that I was doing in the early 90s. And then my advisor, Shelby Gerking, was like a second father to me. And, and he brought me in as his second son. And, and that was very important on, on many dimensions. And then outsiders, I, I can think of Art Dizial at Tilburg University, who served a very important role outside of the traditional process of advisor advisee he was in the netherlands and and he believed in me and and he has supported me and then from there the the bigger people as i as i grew as an academic people like gary becker and vernon smith supported me not necessarily as mentors but as very influential people who believed in my work and then finally, Orly Ashenfelter should be mentioned because I was sending field experiments throughout the 90s to academic journals. And you can imagine sending them from the University of Central Florida, you might not receive the warmest reception and from the University of Wyoming as a grad student in the early 90s. And I always felt that Orly gave me a shot. I always felt that Orly was incredibly fair and open. And in fact, he published um, not the first field experiment, he rejected a few, <laughs> but, uh, but eventually he, he published an, an early field experiment that we submitted around 1997 on auctions. And, and Orly was always a person who was very open-minded and supportive. Maybe because we have a lot of questions about uh, your book. Uh, Ted, you could uh, start about the birth of this book. Exactly. I guess that's what I wanted to know, John, having having read the book recently. Can you tell us a little bit more about the inspiration behind writing it? And I'll put myself the idea of kind of, you know, field experimentation, while everybody knows the importance of it, it's not necessarily the topic that jumps to your kind of business best bestseller kind of topic, right? You know, there's there's a lot of kind of sexiness wrapped around behavioral science that kind of grabbed your attention. What was, Where was the kind of birth of, of the voltage effect? Where did it come from? So the idea to work on scaling itself started when I started a pre-K program in Chicago Heights for three, four, and five-year-olds. And the idea there was from soup to nuts with Roland Fryer and Steve Levitt, I built a pre-K program that opened up in 2010. By 2014, we had great results. I mean, just fantastic results. So for me, when you do research like that, you not only want to help the community of Chicago Heights, you want to test economic theory and write academic papers about the program, but you also want to change the world. You want to have your idea scale. And at that moment in time, when I went to policymakers, they basically told me, look, your idea looks great in the Petri dish, but don't expect it to scale. And by this moment, you can imagine, I was 25 years in 
I'd been doing field experiments for 25 years and I was taken aback by that. And I, I basically said, I've never been confronted with that argument. What do you mean? And they said, look, we're not really sure what goes on, but all these experts come to us and tell us that they have a great idea and they have great results. But when you scale it, it never works as well as they say it will work. So I began to have a, a research renaissance, if you will, or pivot. And I started thinking about my whole career. My whole career had been built on using the world as my lab and testing economic theory and using behavioral economics as a lens into the world to try to make the world a better place, figuring out mechanisms and moderators, et cetera. Now, this person was challenging me saying that something would scale. So I scoured the literature and what I ended up finding is they were right. And it's something I call the voltage effect. What happens in the small is in many cases different than what happens in the large. That's what I call the voltage effect. Now, I started writing academic papers on this. We started with economic theory. We did a lot of empirical work with Dana Suskin, who's my partner, um, Omar Alubadle, several co-authors. We write 12, 15, 18 academic papers. Okay. Now, at this moment, you need to decide. Are you going to double down and work harder in the academy and write more academic papers? Or are you going to stop and take stock and write a popular book that you think can change the narrative around the idea of using science for good? And when you step back and start thinking like that, you say, look, I have this academic paper. How many people are reading it? Maybe four or five, if you're lucky. Um, so you start to say, well, can you write this as a popular book? And I then started to think about my time in the White House. Gosh, there's a lot of scaling stuff back then. I started thinking about my work all the way back to the baseball card shows, about generalizability and external validity and scaling. Gosh, I started thinking about what was going on at Uber at the time. And a lot of questions we faced at Uber meant, does this idea scale? I, I have worked for United Airlines, all Chrysler, all kinds of firms to do field experiments with them, both in the for-profit world and the nonprofit world. I started a research agenda back in the late 90s on charitable giving. They all involved scaling. So I said, at this moment, it makes sense. Now, can you write a book that can take out all of the jargon, all of the economies, all of the math, and write it in a way that people will want to read it and understand it. The hardest part about writing a book is getting people to read it. That's, that's hard. It's not easy. I don't know if it's work. It's wor okay, let's put it this way. After two months, it's working so far, but I don't know if it's going to have legs. But so far, people have read the book. I'm very happy with, the, with where we are. But that's really why I wrote the book, Ted. Leads me to my next question before I hand it back to Eric is, you know, if you're trying to change the narrative around, around, you know, how field experiments can, can benefit us and scalability in kind of a sentence, what's the one thing you'd like readers of the Voltage Effect to walk away with in terms of changing their practice or changing the way that they might be doing their own work? Every part of your life will be touched by the Voltage Effect, whether you're in business or you're not a business person, 
there will be at least one thing that you will take away from the voltage effect that will make your decision making in your life better. And if it's not, I'll send you your money back. You heard it here. <laughs> okay, John, the first part of your book is about what you call the five vital signs. Uh, the five uh, specific uh, traits that scalable IDs must possess. So could you tell us more about this idea of vital signs? Yeah, absolutely. So when I started doing the, the theory, what happens is a theory gives you a flashlight into the big data. So it gives you a flashlight into where you should look in the data to find some, let's say, scaling flaws or, or scaling weaknesses on the one hand, but also scaling strengths. And when you start to look in the data, what jumps out at you are really five things. One, many ideas fail because they never had voltage to begin with. And what that means is the analyst didn't experiment or looked at data in some way and it looked great but in the end it was really just a false positive now i think your audience probably doesn't need a lot of explanation given covid um we all know what a false positive is in covid we all know what a false positive is in a burglar alarm or a fire alarm the the one thing that your audience might not know is the prevalence of false positives is much much greater than what they probably ever imagined and that's both because As scientists, the best case scenario is we control the false positive rate at 5%. That's the alpha in our, in our stats. But in the end, it's probably like 0.4 or 0.5 after you have file drawer problem and MH non, you know, people don't correct for MHT, multiple hypothesis testing, uh, P hacking, et cetera. So I tell vignettes and, and stories about why false positives are a great problem. And, It lends into things like confirmation bias or bandwagon effects. And, and I also talk about dupers, people like Elizabeth Holmes, or even in the academy, I talk about Brian Wansink. Um, those are all false positives. So vital sign number two is know your audience. And in a way, this is obvious as well, but I think there are a few gems underneath, such as the way that we usually try to figure out our audience is through focus groups. The issue with focus groups are at once they're non-representative. So that's, that's a point that a lot of CEOs don't understand. But on the other hand, they also face different incentives than what we think they face. So what I mean by that is think about when you invest in a stock or an option, we actually pay money to have the option to buy a stock in the future. It's called buying options in the market. If you have a focus group, it's easy for them to say, oh yeah, if you introduce that hamburger, the Arch Deluxe in the future, of course I'll buy it. The incentives are set up for them to overstate or exaggerate their preferences. And until we take care of that problem, even if you have the representation problem figured out, You also have to understand the incentive problem. So I go into that in the chapter. I also talk about Lift Pink. So uh, membership programs are very important. And I think membership programs will be important for the future. So I, I talk a little bit about how you can think about the slice of the pie through the membership lens as well. 
So that's vital sign number two. Vital sign number three goes from the people, the sample themselves to the situation. And what I mean here is, are there unique elements in the situation that are giving you great results in the Petri dish that can't be replicated at scale? So it's the running story here is, is it the chef or the ingredients? And I talk a lot about restaurants in this chapter because a lot of restaurants try to scale and they fail. What's interesting is the restaurants that end up failing, their initial success was because of the chef. And the bottom line is you just can't scale unique people. So that, that's a general result, whether it's with school teachers. So I have an early childhood program that I mentioned earlier. The secret sauce is the teachers. Well, I can't scale vertically in the sense that it's one thing to hire 30 teachers, but it's a totally different thing to hire 30,000 good teachers in the same input market. That's what I call vertical scaling. Um, vital sign number four is every idea has spillovers. And this was a fun chapter to write because there are lots of different spillovers. I, I talk about four types of spillovers and how those can affect our idea. And then the fifth vital sign is the supply side of scaling. Now, when I started working on scaling, there was a literature called implementation science that focuses on fidelity. That's pretty much, it started in 2007 and it was all about fidelity. It was really psychologists for the most part talking about fidelity or program drift. And so most of the elements I'm introducing here are, are new to that literature. But the fifth one was entirely new because they don't really talk about the supply side. And um, governments typically don't talk about the supply side either. Whereas firms, that's where a lot of firms begin is does my idea have economies of scale or diseconomies of scale? So that's kind of a, a helicopter tour of the first part of the book. Okay, that, that's great. I would like to come back uh, to some of these uh, um, elements. Uh, first, uh, regarding false positive, uh, could you uh, give us one example for our listeners? No, absolutely. So, Eric, do you want a business example or a government example? Oh, we are interested by both. Both? Wow. Okay. Um, let's talk about Nancy Reagan then. Eric, do you remember Nancy Reagan? Yeah, very well. Okay. Wonderful first lady, right? Wonderful. Probably the nice, one of the nicest people who's ever walked the earth. When I worked in the White House, she would bring us in warm cookies, Eric. So she's a very, very nice woman. So, you know, every first lady has a goal and they choose a goal when they take office. And her goal was to curb drug use amongst teens. So at the time, she was introduced to a program called D.A.R.E. It was basically a social inoculation program or an information program where people would visit high schools and they would say, just say no to drugs. Eric, I can still remember I was sitting in high school in Sun Prairie, Wisconsin, sitting there, and a person came in and gave us this program. I looked at my teacher and I said, look, I don't use drugs, 
But I have a lot of friends who do, and there's no way that this is going to work. In fact, I said, because of this program, I might even dabble. I, I didn't, but I was actually thinking about it after the program. Okay. He looked back at me and said, John, you might be right, but they say they have data. They actually did have data. They had a really good experiment. I, I looked into it. When I went back and started looking at the original D.A.R.E. experiment, I thought that I was going to find a pile of garbage. I didn't. I found a pretty well done experiment. And it was with 1,777 kids from a Honolulu high school. It looked like it had voltage. They did not go back and replicate. They did not test it in a different market before they blew it up. They blew it up all over America. We spent tens and hundreds of millions of dollars and a lot of human hours. The first lady's time, uh, she could have chosen a different issue that had voltage, but she didn't. And to me, this is a fun fact and one that shows this isn't just a nickel or penny issue. This is a $100 million issue. And I also talk about my my time at Chrysler and how there was a false positive there. But I'll leave that for the reader. That, that's an example, Eric. Okay, no, that's great. Um, there is another example, which is, uh, I think, uh, very powerful. Um, it is uh, the case of Jamie Oliver. Could you uh, tell us more about this uh, story and the difficulty to scale? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, Eric, you've jumped to Chapter 3. And Chapter 3, we're going to talk about the situational features that are in place when you have initial voltage. Now, I think Chapter 3, in terms of the scaling question itself, is probably the most important one just because it's the richest one. And what I mean by the richest one is it picks up the idea that I think is the fundamental error that we have made as social scientists in terms of trying to change the world. And here's what I mean by that. So as you can imagine, as an academic, I travel around the world a lot and give lectures. Occasionally, when I'm talking, there's a smart student who raises her hand and she says, Professor, these field experiments are really cool, but I kind of don't get it because we've been after poverty eradication for decades and doing research on it, and we still haven't made a dent in it. So take out poverty eradication, put in discrimination, climate change, uh, public education, same story. My argument in the book is because we have been asking and answering the wrong question. And this argument is contained in the chapter that you just raised. Here's what I mean by that. When we do an experiment, what we typically do is we give theory its best shot. 
we use all the best inputs because we want to give our program or its idea its best shot. We use a best of breed all over. And then we write it up and we forget to tell everyone else that it was an efficacy test. So what you've just answered is a question of, in the best case scenario, can your program work in the Petri dish? That's what you've just answered. That's, that's great. That's one kind of question. But that's not changing the world. Because the question you need to answer is, will the idea, when it is scaled, with all of its warts, whether it's a regulatory constraint, an input constraint, program drift, whatever, with all of those warts, will the idea work? You don't know that from the Petri dish. What you need to do is what I call policy-based evidence. You need to bring back those warts to the Petri dish. Think about my Chicago Heights early childhood program that I set up. If I want to vertically scale that thing and I need to hire 30,000 good teachers, it's impossible. So I need to put in that Petri dish the types of teachers I'm going to be hiring. And now what that means is in many cases, I'm going to be experimenting with really low quality inputs in that case because that's who I'm going to be hiring. Now, whether it's resource, infrastructural, regulatory, input, human, whatever, we need to explore those in the Petri dish and say, this is what the program will look like at scale and does it work? If it doesn't, we need to revise it. And we need to figure out programs in the Petri dish that will work at scale and that needs to be our approach in the process of picking ideas that can scale. Right now, we have no way to do that because what we're doing is efficacy tests. And unlike medicine, where when you do an efficacy test to start, we don't have phase one, phase two, phase three, and an understanding of what you've just done. We think that once you publish in a journal, it's the truth. And, and they've used all of the warts. They haven't. We know they haven't. Just look at the the rewards and the way things are set up in the academy. Nobody is truly kicking the tires in the Petri dish of something that matters. We're not. And that's why we haven't made progress. That's really what chapter three is about. It's about making sure there are not unique elements that you've had to use to get your great stuff, what I call non-negotiables, when you scale that thing, you have to make sure that your non-negotiables are there. And in many cases, we don't do that. And in fact, in very few cases, that's why we have voltage drops in a nutshell. That's one of the major reasons. Does that help, Eric? Yeah, 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 very clear. And it was a problem that you described, but we let our listener read the book with Jamie Oliver. Um, I have a, maybe a last question of this part one because I would like Ted ask you some question about the second uh, part, which is uh, about the secret of high voltage uh, scaling. Um, to me, what is maybe the most difficult and challenging is really about spillover effect, because what do we need to measure? Because at the moment we need to 
to stop looking at what are the effects of what we test on other variables. Um, so, um, do you have uh, any uh, advice uh, regarding how to measure spillover? Where do we need to stop? But uh, what is really essential to evaluate? Yeah, absolutely. That's a good question. So let's first of all define a few types of spillovers. I think some are easy to measure and some are harder. So let, let's start with the easy stuff. So take yourself back to the 1960s, Eric. There's this uh, cavalier named Ralph Nader. So Nader writes this great book in 1965 on traffic fatalities and how dangerous the roads are in America. The federal government listens and in 1968, they enact what's called the first seatbelt legislation in the United States. So before 1968, most vehicles did not have seatbelts. Your listeners might be like, what? These were the caveman days. <laughs> so the federal government enacts a very costly legislation that all vehicles have to have seatbelts. And they estimate that it will save millions of lives. That's what Nader said, too. 1975 comes along, and my colleague Sam Peltzman writes a paper. And in the paper, he measures how many lives are saved because of this new seatbelt law. Guess what he estimates? I read the book, so I know. <laughs> zero. He estimates zero because there is an unintended consequence, a type of spillover that people begin to drive more aggressively. It's called the Peltzman effect. Okay, that's found a lot. That's one kind of spillover. That's easy to measure. Just do a Petri dish and see if people's behaviors change. Now, what is harder is sort of on the other extreme, Eric, and this is what you were referring to. These are market-wide or system-wide adjustments to an equilibrium. So I always like to think about Uber. I used to be the chief economist at Uber when the delete Uber campaign happened. I don't know if either of you can remember the hashtag delete Uber. So I won't get into the story about why that happened, but the, the outcome of that was Uber lost a lot of drivers and riders because of hashtag delete Uber. Travis Kalanick, the founder, came to my team. My team was called Team Ubernomics at Uber. And he said, John, your responsibility is to get the drivers back. So I started to brainstorm ideas. And the idea that we brought forward was we should put tipping in the app. A lot of you listeners might not know this, but before August, September, October of 2017, there was no tipping in the Uber app. Drivers would put tin cups in the back seat and say, please give me a tip. That's how it worked. And, and consumers didn't like that so much. So there was this consternation. Okay. So we tested that with, say, 5% of the drivers in a market. Go to Chicago, allow 5% of the drivers to receive tips in the app. Guess what happens? They receive tips, they earn more, they work more. They're happier. Great. 
Guess what happened, however, when we rolled out tipping to all of the drivers in Chicago? Well, they could receive tips, they work more, and in fact, they worked so much more that they were driving around with an empty car more often, and with an empty car, you don't get paid, and it completely undid the good wage effect that we observed in the 5% experiment. Now, when we did it in steps, we kind of knew this was going to happen because when you do it in steps, instead of 5%, now do 25%. You can see it kind of erodes, now do 50. So if you can, what you want to do is do it in steps, and then you can see how the trajectory looks in your data. And there you have a good sense of where the spillovers are taking your new equilibrium. So one way to do it is to do it sequentially in a manner that slowly scales or grows. If you can't do that, you have to then do a little bit of, let's say, deviation and then use economic theory to try to predict where, where this thing is going. Now, I've seen it both ways. But the idea of this chapter is to understand these things exist and try to harness ideas that have good spillovers, like network externalities, for example. You look at Facebook or social media platforms. Those are ideas in the small that don't look that great. But in the large, they have high voltage because the more people that adopt it, the better the product is. So the idea is just to get a sense of what are the spillovers of your particular policy or idea, and then take those into account. In the, in the Petri dish, like I said, you can do that. Um, sometimes you might have to have some economic theory as well. Speaking about uh, high voltage scaling, I think, Ted, you have some question to understand your secret. So, you know, we've talked about the first part of the book, which is about kind of the recognition of those critical features of scalable ideas, right? But I'm personally interested because the work that we do at BVA um, about how do you kind of engineer what you call voltage gains? Of course, when we're creating interventions or optimizations or suggestions for our clients, we want to make sure that they have that kind of voltage. You know, some as you know, working with, with um, you know, private uh, and, and public clients as they were or, or partners, some have the scale and have the ability to kind of, you know, help you understand scale. And some just quite honestly don't literally don't have the scale at, in terms of the size of their business, or they don't have the time to kind of test and, and experiment in the way that we would always like them to. So a couple questions for you about how do we kind of edge, get an edge. Um, so the first key strategy you talk about is kind of using behavioral economics incentives to maximize the results. Why are incentives so important? And my real critical question here is how do we get the incentives right? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, so you're right. The second half of the book is a pivot to, I would say, the rest of the world. And it's a pivot to people and individuals to give them insights about how our research can make their decision making better, whether you're a firm or just an individual. Now, when people hear incentives and they say, here comes the economist, they naturally say, he's going to tell us how important money is. And it's going to be all about money. You know, after reading the book, that's not what this chapter is about. It's not because I don't think money matters. In many cases, money does matter. 
But a lot of times money doesn't scale because in, in terms of scarce resources, you might have diseconomies of scale in the amount of money you have to give out. So you have to think a little bit more creatively. Now, where I start the chapter is I, I want to talk about non-financial incentives, pecuniary, non-pecuniary incentives. So go back to Uber and think about Uber tipping. I, I just talked about when we rolled out tipping, and there are some interesting facts about tipping. One fact is only 1% of people tip on every trip. So just so the listeners don't have to rewind, what I said was 1% of people tip on every Uber trip. On the other side of the coin, three out of five never ever tip. Okay, again, three out of five never ever tip. Now, when we look at data with ordinary cabs, so the yellow cabs that drive around cities in America, you have 90 to 95% of trips that are tipped. Okay, so what does this tell you? It tells you how important social norms are. It tells you how important social pressure is. And it tells you that if we can leverage these types of non-pecuniary aspects, whether you're raising money for charity, getting people to pay their taxes, getting workers to work harder, all of these effects can be harnessed with thought. So part of the chapter talks about how to harness these types of non-financial incentives for good. Now, when you said, how can we use them the best? What most firms have trouble doing is defining what their objective function is. But once you define, you get a firm to say, here is my objective function. I want my workers to come to work more often. I want taxpayers to pay their taxes more. I want, let's say, my consumer to be willing to make two purchases a week rather than one. That's a huge hurdle for a lot of or orgs is just to figure out what do you want. And then your job is to say, OK, if they want the worker to work harder, my job now is to figure out what are the underlying motivations of the worker? You know, how much money goes into the equation for them? How much peer effect or social norms or what have you? And then once you figure out what the underlying motivations of the actors are, you're in business because we have a wealth of solutions to say, okay, I know what your motivations are. Here are the best levers to pull. Okay, let's talk. Let's say that I, I find out that workers are motivated primarily by money. Am I just going to increase the amount of money? Maybe if you're not creative, but in my chapter, I would say, think about your bonus scheme. I would say, look, usually what happens is you have somebody work all year, and at the end of the year, you give them the end of the year bonus. It's called a Christmas bonus in the States. That's what we all do. I do it at Lyft. I'll do it at Walmart. It's department chair at University of Chicago's econ department. I did it here. But what if we did a little bit differently? What if instead of giving the bonus at the end of the year, we move it to the front? And we say, look, there's a provisional bonus, it's in an account, or I can just give you the cash directly like I did with Chicago school teachers. 
And I tell you, if you don't achieve this objective, I'll take the money away. Now I'm leveraging loss aversion. You, you are huge fans of Danny and Amos, right? Late 1970s, they read a great paper in Econometrica 1979 about loss aversion in riskless settings. That helps. It matters. What we find is it helps in manufacturing plant workers. I find it helps with teachers. It helps on farms in the Midwest. It helps in Nepal. So these types of ideas work. And that's a more creative way to get more scaling buck out of your bucks. So that's what this chapter talks about. But I think the overarching theme is you always have to be able to define your objective function and you need to figure out what are the underlying motivations of the actors. Most people don't even get there. But once you get there, you're sort of home free. Um, like one of some of my favorite papers that I've ever written, like I, I go back and look at the discrimination paper in 2004, the nature and extent of discrimination in the marketplace. All kinds of tools allow us to measure discrimination. You can measure discrimination with naturally occurring data. But the beauty behind the field experimental method is I can not only measure, but if I set it up correctly, I can figure out the mechanisms at work. And I show that in that paper, the underlying mechanisms were third degree price discrimination. It wasn't Becker style discrimination. And once I know that, now I have a suite of tools that I can use to combat discrimination. It's the same way in, in, uh, in our orgs. Yeah, you, you started talking a little bit about this, but I wanna dig in a little bit more. It's kind of this, the role of culture. Um, you know, you write that, quoting it here, scaling any enterprise is inevitably, inevitably also about scaling values. This is really interesting for us at, at BVA because we work on behavior change initiatives that are global. You know, we might be working on a project that, that accounts for the same client and a, and a fairly similar, if not identical objective in India, Argentina, France, and the US at the same time. Uh, and we know that this can be can be really challenging. Um, could you elaborate a little bit on this idea of kind of cultural context and, and how do we use, how do we kind of scale values? Yeah, absolutely. So when you talk about culture, it's one of these words like creativity, um, critical thinking, that you talk to 30 people, you get 30 different definitions. So my idea of culture is one on the production side that allows people to reach their frontiers of production and on the social side makes people feel good. They're, they're happy with it. And on the chapter on culture, this is a fun chapter because I could take insights from my days at Uber and I could take insights from our experiments in fishing villages in Brazil about where we learn from fishing villages that are more communal versus when they're more soloists. And what do those communities engender and what, what does it take? What I can say is that from the very beginning, the very origins of, for example, when you place a job ad, what you write in that job ad will determine both the types of people who apply and whether people will be paid the same when they start. And, and I show those examples. When you think about culture on site, you're talking about, on the one hand, people like meritocracy, but I've seen meritocracy run amok. 
where it's the loudest voice and it's a University of Chicago econ seminar every meeting. And if you don't know what that means, you could look around and find out. It's one of, it used to be at least one of the most combative types of settings. And I've seen org settings like that. It has to be a setting where everyone is comfortable with giving their opinions, even though they might be wrong. And it has to be a setting where we understand that the production function needs diverse inputs because it does. And that leads to, let's say, fairness in the workplace. I've seen cultures built in small orgs that are great to go from zero to, say, 20 million. But that's a culture in many ways that will never work from 20 to 100 or 20 to 200 because it's built on principles that you can never keep hiring diverse or different people. And it all starts from the very beginning of how we bring people in and then how we conduct our meetings. I think teamwork is extremely important from the beginning. I think setting up the incentives in the workplace whereby it's not just a person who has the idea, he tests it and he ships it and he gets the incentive. There has to be a naysayer and a gatekeeper and it has to be appreciated what that gatekeeper does. And until you have a setting like that, it won't work and it will be eggshells. I think we begin to appreciate both the meaning of work and the appreciation of people. And that's really a nice thing to see is, is let's say the modern economy evolves John, uh, we are close to the end of this uh, conversation. We are very conscious about uh, your time. I'd like to end by asking you a bit about the future and uh, any of your new projects. So first, do you have any new research you are looking forward to working on? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, let me go to early childhood. So. We've been working a fair amount on programs or interventions in the delivery room where we are in the delivery room and we talk to, let's say, underserved communities and their, and their citizens about the best way to grow their child's brain. And we find early on that beliefs matter a lot. What I mean by beliefs is when you look at rich parents, they invest because they believe that their child's brain can be changed and it's mutable, whereas poor families tend to think that the brain is immutable. So if you take that a step forward, we have a new technology that my wife and I are developing, but it's mostly my wife. She's leading the charge. And that's a technology that's a wearable piece of technology that we're measuring all of the interactions between parent and child or care, uh, caretaker and child. And then we're running those interactions through machine learning models and learning about what are the best forms of interaction that grows the brain. Because on the back end, we look at how their cognitive and non-cognitive skills evolve as a function of that interaction, the, the kind of the take turns, talk more and tune in idea. And from there, we will then develop treatments or interventions that induce those types of good features that we learn in the ML model. And 
then we see if they're causally related. And then now we're in business because we're trying to map out a proper playbook for parents and a proper playbook for brain development. When you look at the brain science, it's amazing the amount of brain formation in the early years that there are some critical stages in there, critical windows, that if you miss those, you can never get them back. And we think a big chance to lessen the opportunity gap is to take on from the delivery room until kindergarten and take matters into our own hands because clearly governments are not being serious about that. So as researchers, if you want to change the world, our approach is through technology and ML with a bit of field experimentation. So that's probably what I'm most excited about on the research side right now. Mm. Oh, that's a wonderful project. It reminds me of a conversation with uh, Professor Lisa Feldman Barrett. I'm sure she would be uh, very interested by this project. Uh, to conclude, John, what is your hope for the future of behavioral science? Oh, gosh. I, I would say to continue to make inroads and to embrace other fields such as sociology, political science, computer science, deep learning, other fields. Because remember, behavioral economics, it's an amendment of the principles of economics using all other fields, not just psychology. People have begun to think that behavioral economics is the interaction between psychology and economics because that's where most of our examples come from and that's where most of the success has been so i wrote a recent paper titled the social side of human capital formation and that leverages insights from sociology to explore human capital formation in communities or in neighborhoods and and i think we need to reach out more and more to our sister sciences and the hard sciences to leverage more of their insights to amend our model. And that's truly behavioral science and truly behavioral economics, not just psychology and economics. That's where I hope we continue to evolve because let's face it, economics is life and life is economics. And if we want to address more potential problems, we need to bring in more of the insights from the other parts of science. That's really great. John, you've taken us from baseball card shows in rural Wisconsin to the backseat of Ubers in Chicago to the future of delivery rooms and, and child uh, education. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, is there anything you'd like to leave our listeners with, perhaps where they can find out more about you and your work? Obviously, they can find The Voltage Effect wherever good books are sold, I'm sure is what we have to say. But in terms of finding you, you know, on Twitter, any kind of website, where your kind of latest research is being published, where can our listeners find you? Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, as a warning, don't Google me. Um, if you Google me, there will be a mass murder, and I promise there's no relation, but it does kind of tell you something about Americans' interest, right? At, at least their interest in relation to mass murders and economists. Right now, we're on the, we're on the wrong end of that. But um, on Twitter, I'm, I'm called Econ for Everyone. So if you type in John List or Econ for Everyone, my wife made me join in late December because it, she said you need to join the new world. So I, I post occasionally there. I also post on LinkedIn. 
Now, the problem with LinkedIn is I have 30,000 connections. And when I try to connect to new people, the system doesn't let me. So I, I, I would love to connect with everyone, but I don't know how to connect with any people, anyone else. But there I post a lot of times work that's downloadable on ideas or Repec, and it's free. The, the downloads are free. And I, I put a lot of my work on LinkedIn to show people, here's what we've been doing. And then I also do it on Facebook. So Facebook, I actually only have 4.4 thousand friends. So I, I think I get 600 more friends. So if you, if you ask me on Facebook, I'm glad to say yes, up to 600 more, and then I, I'll be tapped out again. We will, we will look for you there. I just want to thank you again, John. And, and that's all for this episode of Be Good. Let us know what you think about each episode on Twitter. You can find us at BVA Nudge Consulting. And subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud so you don't miss the next episode. Until next time, and remember to be good, or at least try to be good. Thanks so much. Thanks a lot, John. It was a wonderful conversation. Be Good, a podcast by the BVA Nudge Unit.